This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by the Art of Manliness store. At store.artofmanliness.com, you can find all sorts of Art of Manliness swag. We got our one-of-a-kind Benjamin Franklin Virtue Journal, our Carry the Fire Zippo Lighter, inspired by Cormac McCarthy's The Road. We've got posters with Roger Kipling's poem If on it, Theodore Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech. Of course, we got t-shirts, we got coffee mugs. Right now, we're in a big clearance sale. Some items up to 60% off. Just go to the clearance section in the store. And if you use code AOM Podcast at checkout, you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Again, store.artofmanless.com, code AOM podcast for 10% off your first purchase. Also check out our clearance. All your purchases from the Art of Manliness store help support the Art of Manliness podcast as well as the content we produce on artofmanliness.com. Thank you. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The Gila National Forest covers about 3.3 million acres in southwest New Mexico. During the dry summer season, wildfires pose a serious threat to that area. To spot wildfires in this vast landscape as soon as they start, the U.S. Forest Service relies on fire towers spread throughout the area that are each manned by a lone individual. My guest today wrote a memoir about the unique experience this job offers. His name is Philip Connors. He's a writer and one of the country's few remaining fire watchers. Today on the show, we discuss what the life of a fire watcher is like and what it's taught him about nature, solitude, and time. Along the way, Philip describes the virtues of listening to baseball games by radio and the value of slowing down in an increasingly rushed world. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash firewatch. Philip joins me now via clearcast.io. Here you go, Philip Connors. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be with you. So uh, you're a writer, but you found yourself in an interesting seasonal career as well a couple years ago as a fire watcher on a fire tower in the Gila National Wilderness Area in New Mexico. Before we get to your experience, I don't think a lot of people know about fire towers in America and like what they do. So can you give us like a kind of a history of uh, a brief history of fire towers in uh, the American West? Yeah, they really took off as a phenomenon early in the 20th century with the advent of the U.S. Forest Service. And there were some massive wildfires in the northern Rockies around 1910 that kind of encoded in the DNA of the early Forest Service a desire to stamp out forest fires as quickly as possible. So one of the ways of doing that, of course, is early detection. And so fire towers were built on many a mountaintop in the American West. Some had already been in place in the East even before then. But by, you know, 1940 or so, there were probably about 8,000 fire towers across the country. And the idea was you place a human being up on a mountaintop with a 360-degree view, and that person, by staying vigilant, will give you, you know, quick detection of a forest fire and allow firefighters to jump on it right away and stamp it out. So they pretty much lived up there for months at a time by themselves. Right. Yeah, the early fire lookouts would typically go to a mountain well away from a road and just stay there for the duration of fire season from when the snow melted in the spring and until weather changed in the late summer or fall that fire danger would finally be lessened. You know, there's some 
great writing that's come out of the job. Norman McLean, in his book of stories, A River Runs Through It, wrote about being a fire lookout in 1919 in uh, Montana. And he, yeah, he basically went up and lived in a tent, climbed a tree several times a day for a look around, and that was the job. And he would use a, a crank telephone to call in fires to the ranger station below. And uh, Jack Kerouac also did that, right? He did. He spent one season in the North Cascades, Washington State, and he made much of that experience in in multiple books of his. He's probably the most famous literary fire lookout of all, even though he only spent 63 days on Desolation Peak and seemed to find it a disagreeable experience, too much solitude. Right. We'll talk about that solitude here in a bit and your experience with it. Another interesting, I, I remember reading through, I collect old men's magazines from like the 50s and 60s. I think it was True Magazine. They had a feature about uh, one thing that some couple, new, newlywed couples would do back in the 50s was for their honeymoon or shortly after they got married was they would go and just do a fire watch for a couple months. And that was their honeymoon. I thought it was an interesting article. Yeah, you know, I met someone who did that on the mountain where I work back in the early 50s. I just happened to run into her in a restaurant in a very small town in southern New Mexico, and she started talking to me, and I told her where I was working. I was just on days off from the fire tower, and she said, oh, my husband and I spent our honeymoon there back in 1953 when she was, you know, 17 or something, and he was 20 years old. So, yeah, yeah, it was a thing. Yeah, it'd be funny. Hey, honey, we're going to go be alone for three months or four months on a mountain. Yeah, if you <laughs> want to test the strength of the relationship, I guess that would be one way to do it. That's the way to do it. So there were 8,000 of these towers at one point, but they've been declining. How many are there in existence today? And why are there so few? So the numbers that I've been hearing in the last few years are that somewhere between four and 500 are still staffed, mostly in the American West. There are other countries, of course, that use them too, Australia and places in South America. But in the United States, it's a few hundred. And there's a variety of reasons why the number has declined. Partly it's just development into formerly uh, forested areas. You know, once upon a time, it was only a lookout could see a fire in uh, certain places in, say, California. But with home construction and development into those areas, it's just as likely that someone, you know, standing on their back deck will see the fire as quickly as a, a lookout would. And in other places, they've just gone to different detection methods like overflights with airplanes and, you know, there's just a continual push to use more technology in place of actual human beings. I mean, we see that across our entire society, but it's also true for lookouts that people dream of using, um, you know, infrared cameras linked with pattern recognition software or satellites, maybe unmanned aerial vehicles, drones. So... All of those things have um, pushed lookouts, not not to the brink of extinction, but we are definitely a dwindling 
threatened species. Right. Well, let's talk about how you got connected with this. When did you start working a fire tower in New Mexico? How did how did that happen? So my first year was 2002, 16 years ago, and I just got lucky. I uh, I got a note from a friend of mine, an old friend from the University of Montana, and she wrote to me and said that she had got a gig as a summer lookout down in the Gila in New Mexico and that I should come visit. At the time, I was working as a uh, copy editor in New York City at the Wall Street Journal. So she sort of teased me and said, you know, get your flabby white keister out of that cubicle and escape the canyons of lower Manhattan for a view from a mountain in New Mexico. So naturally, I couldn't resist that invitation. I flew to Albuquerque and drove south from there a couple hours and met up with my friend. And we hiked into this fire tower many miles from the nearest road. She was on days off uh, when we met up. And I spent 72 hours there and just absolutely fell in love with uh, the view, the landscape, the lifestyle, the essence of the job. And she had been there by then for months and was kind of itching for more action than one typically sees just living on a mountaintop. She wanted to go fight a fire. So she talked her boss into letting her do that and allowing me to slot in as her replacement for what remained of that season. And the rest is history. I've gone back every summer since 2002. And how long, so you start in the summer, how long are you there? How long does a fire season last? So our fire season starts pretty early because we're so far south. We typically kick off with fires in April. And I'll be on the mountain typically until sometime in August every year. We get a monsoon rain weather pattern that puts an end to fire danger here, usually starting in sometime in July and extending into August. So most seasons I'll work from early April to at least mid-August. Okay. And so and you're in the Gila National Wilderness Area, correct? Yeah, it's the Gila National Forest, which is 3.3 million acres. And inside of that is a protected roadless wilderness area of half a million acres. Gotcha. And, and why are there still towers there? Is it just because it's so large or is it more susceptible to fires? Actually both. It's a very large landscape. Like I said, 3.3 million acres. The Gila National Forest is as large as some small eastern states. And it is very susceptible to lightning caused wildfires. The nature of the landscape, it's very dry, it's very arid forest, and it gets hit by more lightning than any other landscape in America, aside from the Gulf Coast region. So combine those two things, very uh, arid, flammable fuels and lots of lightning. And so every season we see typically hundreds of wildfire starts in the Gila. And because it's not very uh, settled, there aren't many towns nearby or within the forest, it still does require eyes in the sky to 
detect wildfires there. So you're not the only tower there. There's other towers in the area? That's correct. There are 10 of us actually still staffed in the Gila, which probably is more than any other forest in the lower 48. Well, so whenever you see a wildfire, so I imagine you see the smoke first. What, what goes on? How do you all triangulate where the fire's at? How does that work? Yeah, so we, um, we're all equipped with two essential tools. One is a two-way VHF radio. So we can communicate with other lookouts and with dispatchers and with firefighters on the ground. And we have um, this tool that really hasn't changed in 100 years called the Osborne Firefinder, which is essentially a sighting device. It's almost like a gun sight. And what you do with it is you zero in on the precise location of the smoke And you're right, it is typically smoke you see first, not flames. And when you do that, it'll give you a compass reading expressed in degrees from 0 to 360 that is is what we call the azimuth, which is basically a straight line between your location and the smoke. And then what we can do with that is talk to other lookouts and say, my azimuth is, say, you know, 90 degrees from my location. That other lookout, if uh, he or she can see the smoke, will also come up with an azimuth reading. And then we turn to these uh, maps of the forest, which are typically on a, a drop-down board on hinges within our fire tower. And we just cross our lines on those maps using uh, compass rosettes that are affixed to the map and it's a simple case of triangulation and if we have at least two lines from two different locations to the smoke then we can pinpoint it with great accuracy so you said there you see you know a couple hundred of these lightning started wildfires uh are do you get like an adrenaline rush still? Like anytime you see smoke and like you get excited and you feel your heart go fast or is, have you gotten used to it where it's, it's, it's just, it's just like part of the job? Yeah. You'd think after 16 seasons and many dozens of fires called in from my location, it would kind of get to be old hat, but it is the case that for me anyway, I still do get that adrenaline rush. Partly it's just knowing that I'm the only person in the world seeing this natural phenomenon and uh, I'm about to sound the alarm and give the fire a name. All of those play into uh, the adrenaline rush. And sometimes, you know, you can go weeks, maybe even a couple months staying vigilant and nothing happens. And then all of a sudden one day it's there. So yeah, it never does fail to be thrilling. Yeah, that was another thing I didn't know. Fires get names, and the person who sees it first gets to name it, sort of like a hurricane gets a name. Right, yeah. We typically try to give it a name that's based on a local landmark. So, you know, a river or a canyon or a the name of a peak or some other prominent local landmark. So, you know, usually when you hear fires in the news... It's because someone spotted it and, you know, a lot of places where there aren't lookouts, it'll be the firefighters or the dispatch center that gives it a name, but still here on the Gila, it's the lookouts that name the fires. 
So let's talk about one of the, I mean, I think the thing I've, I found most fascinating about this was your experience with solitude in nature. Cause it's something that I think a lot of people today don't experience. Um, so before that, we get to the specific instances of that. Let's talk about like your accommodations to give people an idea of what your day to day was like. So there's a fire tower. Like, where did you sleep? Is there like a cabin on top of the tower that you, you slept in? At my mountain, there's a cabin down below the tower, unconnected with the tower. A lot of lookouts have live-in towers that are roomier. They're, say, you know, 12 by 12 or 14 by 14 feet, often with a catwalk around the exterior. My tower is one of those bare-bones, utilitarian spaces that's uh, 7 by 7 feet, and not really a livable space. It's just big enough to hold the Osborne Firefinder and allow one person to walk around the outside of it. And so there's a cabin that's been there for many, many decades where I live, and it's just right below the tower. Okay. And so when you went there, like what, how far away were you from like humanity? I mean, were you, was it hundreds of miles away? I mean, how, how alone were you? Not quite that extreme. I'm five miles from the nearest road, and that road will take you to a town with um, adult beverages and a lunch spot in about a 40-minute drive. So, you know, it's, it's relatively isolated just because of the distance from automobiles, but, you know, if I hike real fast down the down the hill to my truck and speed off away, I can be having, I can leave my tower and be drinking a beer in like two and a half hours. Gotcha. So how long did you go without seeing or talking to anyone during this, when you're up on a, a season? Uh, it varies quite a bit. I'm there for 10 day stretches at a time and then I get four days off. So during those 10 days, I live there, stay there, sleep there. During the four days off, I hike out and go home. But during those 10 days, I might see nobody for 10 days. It's pretty rare that that happens, but it has happened. And other times I'll see day hikers, you know, when the weather's nice in the summer, I might see day hikers three or four days in a row, you know, maybe a a couple one day and three or four people the next day. And then I'll go four or five days without seeing anybody. So it's pretty variable. It often depends on just how good the weather is and how much people decide they want to get out and take a walk. But it is still possible for me to go 10 days without seeing anybody, which is always rather delightful for me. Yeah. Was that, I was going to ask you, was that unnerving, but it sounds like you actually enjoyed that solitude. Yeah. On the contrary, for years and years, every time I heard hikers coming up the hill, having a conversation with each other, or maybe just see saw them uh, appear through the trees at the edge of the meadow, my heart would sink because I'd think, oh, geez, I got to exercise my vocal cords and uh, give my little public relations <laughs> speech about wildfire and what this place is all about. But over the years, I found if you're willing to hike five miles uphill for the sheer pleasure of it, you're typically a quality human being. And so I've come to treasure my my interactions with strangers who show up there unannounced and 
just accept that that's part of the deal. You know, it's, I'm lucky I get to live for months each year on a piece of public land that's owned by all of us. And so I, you know, I don't need to get all possessive about it. It's owned by every other American too. So if they want to come and enjoy it, take a hike, see the view from a mountain, they should absolutely do that. And uh, I'll try to be as welcoming as I can uh, while they're there. Um, I'm curious, do you notice, like, do you like go through a transition from, you know, you know, there's a there's a you that is you before you know fire season where you're you're interacting with people probably more regularly than you do when you're on a fire season like is there a difference between that you and then as you go further further deeper into the season where you're more and more alone like do you change it all do you notice a change in your brain does i mean I'm, you know you know so i'm trying to ask here do you know yeah you know i do my wife would probably tell you that uh, come you know, late February, early March, early March of every year, I start to get a little uh, anxious, a little, um, maybe even a little unpleasant to be around. And it's, it's because I'm looking forward to this incredible experience that I keep having summer after summer and keep loving more and more the more I do it. It's interesting because I have that 10 day stretch of work there and then four days off. It's not like I unplug so radically from the world for a really long stretch of time. I come to treasure that balance between solitude and sociability. So on my days off every other weekend, you know, it's kind of fun to get together with friends and catch up and, you know, sit down and gossip or have a couple beers and and then uh then i get to escape again and go hang out by myself for 10 days at the end of the season i do always find it's really hard to let go the season is always too short no matter how long it extends you know i'd probably prefer to be there about 10 months a year instead of five but you know it's just part of the deal it's a seasonal job Living there in the winter would probably be really brutal anyway, because it'd be really cold up above 10,000 feet. So I try to, I try to just remember all things in moderation and all things in balance, you know, the solitude and the sociability, the high country bliss and the neon plastic valleys. It's all, it's all part of my life. And I try to try to remain pretty balanced about it. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. You know what's smart? Kicking off 2019, planning out which roles your business needs to hire for. You know what else is smart? Starting the new year off by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness to hire for the right people. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience. Then it actively invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over one thousand reviews. And right now my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. If you love the show, show your support to it and go to ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness, M-A-N-L-I-N-E-S-S 
That's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Also by Proper Cloth. This year, set a realistic goal to wear a shirt that fits. From collar to cuff, every Proper Cloth shirt is made to order, so it's guaranteed to be unique to you. Just answer 10 simple questions to get your custom shirt size, no tape measure required, then choose from over 20 collar styles, 10 cuff styles, and 500 fabric styles from classic to business casual. The team at Proper Cloth works with the best fabric producers from around the world and only buys fabrics that meet their high expectations. Plus, each one of their shirts goes through an extensive quality control testing so you're getting the absolute best quality and craftsmanship. Best of all, Proper Cloth guarantees a perfect fit, meaning if your shirt doesn't fit perfectly, they will remake it for free. This is the future of shirts. Looking better has never been this easy and it just starts at $80. Stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Start looking your best at the custom fitted shirt by going to propercloth.com slash manliness today and enter gift code manliness to save $20 on your first shirt. Again, propercloth.com slash manliness, gift code manliness to save $20 on your first shirt. And now back to the show. How has your connection to nature changed since working as a fire watch? Because this, you're in an interesting position because you're observing nature from a very macro level. It's not like you're like looking at an individual leaf, like a botanist, but like you're looking at an entire landscape. So I imagine that's changed the way you perceive nature in some way. Yeah, it has. It's interesting because I get to spend more than a hundred days there every year. I can spend a whole afternoon like down on my hands and knees if it's a cloudy day and fire danger is really low like geeking out on shorthorned lizards and salamanders poking out of their holes in the meadow below my tower so i can you know spend time focused on the micro world and the micro life that i share the mountain with and At the same time, I'm mostly looking at a piece of country that's really big. From from my tower, I can see, oh, if you went to the horizon and drew it out on a map and and lined it, you'd probably encompass an area of close to 20,000 square miles. I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal view. You can see forever. And... One of the interesting things about the experience of being there as long as I have is I've seen changes, changes that are happening on a landscape scale. The fires keep getting bigger and hotter. A lot of the old growth forest that, you know, has been there since who knows, it's probably been there in some form or another, you know, burning and regenerating for 10,000 years. A lot of it's going away now, and it doesn't seem like it's going to come back because of climate change. So, yeah, I toggle back and forth between that that real close-up micro-attention to the world around me up there and the big-picture view, which to me is rather scary, watching it change on a landscape scale relatively quickly. Uh, is like besides the sight, is there something about the sound? Like, is it just like supremely quiet up there or is it actually pretty loud with the wind? Uh, it depends on the season and the day. The springtime tends to be very windy there. And the noise of that can be deafening and actually challenging for one's mental health to live amid that howl day after day. I've measured wind gusts above uh, 80 miles an hour there. And so you can imagine hanging out in a a metal tower built in the late 1930s, maybe not being the most pleasant way to while away your workday. 
And then, you know, later in the season, the wind dies down. We get toward June and July and into August. And yeah, there are days of just supreme silence, nothing but bird calls. So I see that place in many different moods and weathers, and some I prefer more than others, but it's kind of an interesting experience to see the range of moods and weathers in a place if you just root yourself there and and sit and watch for a while. Do you get bored up there? Like you're just staring out, you know, thousands of thousands of acres and you're trying to, and I mean, I'm sure you're, does your mind wander? Like, what do you think about? Like, what do you do to while away the time? Yeah. Uh, people ask me that a lot and it is just the case that I, I can't remember a moment there when I was ever bored. The view is so interesting for one thing. There's plenty to do just from a logistical perspective. You know, I wash my clothes by hand and hang them on the clothesline. I uh, chop wood for warmth because the nights get cold in April. You know, it sometimes gets down into the teens. And so, you know, I need a fairly large stack of wood there every season. So there's also just facilities maintenance that I have to do, painting, roof repair, keeping the gutters tight because they catch rainwater that filters into my cistern and is my drinking water source. And then it's also the case I like to read and write. So uh, I'm blessed. I have a job where if I look out the window every 10 or 15 minutes and do a 360 scan, I am pretty much performing the basics of my job. And I can multitask, you know, by tapping away on the typewriter or reading a book and in the tower and just staying vigilant while I'm doing that, toggling back and forth between these activities. So there's plenty to see, plenty to do, and enough to keep me busy that I I can't remember a time where I thought, yeah, I wish I were not here. I wish I were <laughs> somewhere else where there was more stimulation because there's plenty enough for me there. Do you, do, have you noticed that your writing changes when you're up there or is it pretty much the same? Um, yeah, it's interesting because I use different tools at different times and I think that does affect the writing. Over the years, I've done a lot of writing by hand there in notebooks and I've also done a fair amount of writing on a, an old Olivetti Laterra typewriter and that feels different than when I come home and use my laptop and it I think it's good for me actually because especially the longhand slows me down and I really treasure the ability to to actually work and think that way because it seems like most of the uh, pressure in our culture is to do everything faster. And I just find I'm a, a slow thinker, a slow talker, as you're probably finding in this interview. And I, I think better and more clearly if I slow things down. And it's not a luxury most of us have in our jobs, I don't think anymore. But in mine, I have that luxury and I, I try to cherish it and use it to the best of my ability in my writing to maybe give a different flavor to my writing than you might find elsewhere. 
So another thing you do, you wrote, it was like an addendum to your first book, their fire season at least, about you listen to baseball games on the radio. Tell us about the virtues of listening to a game via radio instead of watching it on TV. Yeah, it's a habit for me that goes way back to my childhood growing up on a farm in southern Minnesota where, you know, we were often working in the fields, uh, in the tractor, or working in the livestock barns. And we'd just have a game on the radio all summer long. So it felt kind of natural to uh, revert to that habit when I'm up there on a mountain and you know, most of my connection to the outside world there happens aside from my VHF radio, which is a, you know, a forest service agency radio where we just talk business. It happens via FM radio and AM radio because I can pick up signals from long distance. So yeah, over the years, I made a habit of, you know, tuning in games that I could find on the AM radio, often out of Denver or Phoenix, the Rockies, the Diamondbacks. And, you know, it kind of seems to fit with the throwback nature of the job, you know. Yeah, most people who geek out on baseball are watching watching it on television. Maybe they have the MLB network package or whatever. And I certainly enjoy doing that from time to time. But I have always liked having a picture painted in words for me and imagining the game playing out in my head because it takes me back to, uh, you know, the late seventies in Southern Minnesota where I would stay up late with a radio under my pillow, listening to twins games on the West coast after I was supposed to be in bed. Just one of those delightful, uh, kind of antique things about our culture that you can thankfully still do you can still do yeah i've done i've listened to football games on the radio and it, yeah it, it's it's kind of it's mentally or cognitively taxing because it's not something you have to, you have to, you have to imagine with your brain without seeing it what's going on based on what some guy's describing and it that can be hard <laughs> yeah i think it's more it's a more active mental experience than watching on TV. TV seems to allow you a passivity because it's just coming at you in images. Whereas if you're listening, you've you've got to create the images. They're not they're not there right in front of your eyeballs. So during this, uh, you know, these 16 years you've been uh, watching fires. Have you ever seen a massive wildfire on the Gila? Uh, yeah, more than one. Really, starting in about 2011. We started to see larger fires. In 2012, I witnessed the largest fire in New Mexico state history, which was more than 500 square miles, almost 300,000 acres, burned up most of uh, a very large mountain range called the Muggions. And then the very next year, I had an experience where a similar fire, about half as large, burned most of the mountain range where I work and forced me to flee in a helicopter evacuation because it was clear that the fire was going to burn over my mountain and all around it. So I saw it when it was a single tree struck by lightning, putting up a little puff of white smoke. And 
Then I watched from afar. I was actually re- reassigned to a different tower 20 miles away for the rest of the season and, and watched as it burned all around my mountain. So we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing mega fires now on a scale we have not seen before, certainly in, uh, in recorded history anyway. Um, what has been your biggest takeaway about life and wilderness work in the fire watch all these years? I mean, you're coming on two decades of doing this. Oh, the biggest takeaway is probably that the healthiest land is the land with the least human impact to it. You know, I, the Gila is a mix. Much of it um, is grazed. A lot of it has roads through it. Some of it has mining claims on it. There are very small human settlements here and there. And yet a lot of it is roadless wilderness where you can only travel by horseback or on foot. And the further you go into that part of the landscape, the wilder it is, the healthier it feels, the more wildlife you experience. And I just love being out there because it's it's so beautiful to experience that web of life that's been existing there for millennia. It's it can be a challenge to you know, come down off the mountain and drive back into a city like El Paso, where I live now, and see what we've done to the landscape there. Because um, it's an urban planning catastrophe. Uh, we're chewing ever more into the desert with new housing developments. And it's a stark contrast to the beauty and complexity and biodiversity of a place like the center of the Gila wilderness, which feels, you know, probably about like it did when it was inhabited by uh, the Mugion native culture a thousand years ago. And I love the feeling of being in that landscape. And I cherish it more and more all the time because it seems to be under threat everywhere, those type of landscapes. If there was someone listening to this podcast and they're, they're hearing like, they think, I want to do that. I want to be a fire watch. Are these jobs pretty competitive like, since there's so few of them now? Yeah, they're extremely competitive. You know, as mentioned, I've been doing it for 16 years and I've found that I'm still the rookie in the Gila because all my uh, colleagues started before me and have kept at it for, in many cases, decades. I have one colleague who uh, the upcoming season will be her 37th year. 37th or 38th, I can't remember. Another colleague who's been at it for 29 years. So once people get these jobs, they do find it hard to give up because they're so precious and so groovy. And there just aren't very many of them. And the ones that do open up, the battle for them is sort of competitive. And the Forest Service has a program where it privileges those with military experience. So you have hiring preference if you're, you know, coming out of a military background. So if you have that, you have an advantage in those jobs that do open up. But yeah, just because there's a few hundred of us and most of them are, most of us are clinging to the jobs we have, it does make it really hard to break in. Well, Philip, is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? Yeah, uh, I have a website, 
www.philipconnors.com. has some links there to my books and my other work, including photos from my location. So that that's a good place to start and branch off from there. Well, Philip Connors, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, the pleasure was mine. Thanks for having me on the podcast. My guest today was Philip Connors. He's the author of the book, Fire Season, Field Notes from a Wilderness Lookout. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at philipconnors.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash firewatch, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find thousands of thorough, well-researched articles about social skills, physical fitness, barbell training, personal finance, just life in general. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. Thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay, encouraging you to not only listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've learned into action. 